0: Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Elf Daboo of Shaftesbury! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood.
1: Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. We are back on the consorts after yep. uh, a brief sojourn into the world of Game of Thrones last Yes, week. Yeah, that was exciting. I really enjoyed that. Mm. And we are now on to Elf Gifu of Shaftesbury. Yes. Had a uh, number of runs at the name. <laughs> we did. Uh, we put that as a bonus out there for <laughs> Privy Councillors. But uh. if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactpod. Like us uh, on the Facebook page, email hotmail.com. And if you're a big fan and you want to hear more and more, you can donate monthly to join the Privy Council. You get bonus content and it helps us keep on podcasting. Yeah. So help us keep it ad-free and keep us podcasting.
0: Biography!
1: So, Elfgafu of Shaftesbury. Who is this? Who is this indeed? Uh, now, some of the Saxons that we've done before have been quite heavy on biography. So, when we did Elfgafu of Kent and Fled Lady of the Mercians, they both had quite a lot to say about them, mm. whereas some of the other ones, like Elfled and Elswith, there wasn't quite so much, so mm. we had to fill in with a little bit more Background. Sort backgroundy of, stuff, yeah. and details about something else relating to Saxon queenship. Fascinating, though, it was. Indeed, and Elfgifu of Shaftesbury is going to be one, Fact-filled. Of, one of the more backgroundy stuff, bits and okay. bobs. Less biography for Elfgifu, but as ever, we'll go through everything we know about her. Mm. Uh, and then we're going to look into a little bit more detail about an aspect of being a Saxon queen that okay. she fits into. So, Elfgifu of Shaftesbury is born. We don't know when. Uh, I mean, this is a running theme, isn't it? It's just a bit of a theme. She becomes consort in 939, so probably likely early 920s, Mm. late teens, early 20s that she would have been born, we imagine.
0: Late teens, she was born?
1: Uh, No, that she would have been when she married. Uh, Yeah, that makes more sense. Mm. Uh, She's the daughter of a man possibly from Wiltshire, (laughs) and a woman called Winfled. Right. Which is unusual, because usually we say she's the daughter of whatever man. And then we don't know the name of the mother. Good point. This time, we actually know the mother, but we don't know the father. That's odd. It is odd. So, she's the consort of Edmund the I. So, we finally moved away from Edward the Elder. Is he Ironside? Edmund I? No, that was Edmund the Second. Right. Okay. We'll go a little bit into what, mm. who Edmund the First was. Now, her name. Um, we've had people on, on Facebook commenting about this sort of um, elf dynasty that there seems to be in yes. the consort. So, she's yes. another one of the elves. But why isn't more made of this? What? <laughs> what? what? guess there's just a lot of elves in Anglo-Saxon England.
0: But do they mean elf as we mean elf? As in someone with pointy ears scampering around the forest?
1: Uh, I haven't looked into it and why we have all these elves. I assume that's the origin.
0: But this, this is what I mean. People need to take notice of this. There's everyone being called elves. <laughs> it's like uh, it being p- perfectly alright and no one mentioned the fact that I'm called Orc. Mm. orchestra Orchestra. <laughs> oh, no, that's orchestra, isn't it? Nearly. Oh, maybe
1: that's where orchestra comes from. <laughs> I see. The uh, famously sonorous <laughs> monsters <laughs> from <fit> fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> so last time we had Edgifu, which was a uh, a good gift. So this time Elfgifu is Elf Gift gift from the elves. Uh as ever, please do send in your hashtag consort cards. We don't mm. have any heritage playing cards for the consort series. We don't have, at this period, any contemporary portraits or likenesses. Nope. So if you can send them in to whichever of our social media, your own version mm. of a heritage playing card for this episode, it's be a lot of fun when we get to the end of the series. Put them all together.
0: Yeah, we've had some hilarious ones. We've had some beautiful ones. And each one we've massively appreciated for the effort that's gone in. Mm. So even if you can't draw, if they give you a feeling, mm. go with the
1: feeling. A little stick woman yeah, <laughs> pointy ears in a box yes, <laughs> being you delivered by Santa's health. <laughs> You've seen my picture, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. So what we know about Elf Gafu of Shaftesbury, as we said, the father and any possibly, possible siblings, we don't know. Mm. Don't know a name, likely would have been a powerful landowner, mm. possibly in Wiltshire, that sort of area. Mm. But, as we said, unusually, it's the mother that we know. Yeah. The reason that we know about her is because of a later charter during the reign of Edgar the Peaceable, in which he identifies a woman called Winfled as his grandmother. Oh. And because it's not on one side, we assume, therefore, that this must be... The other. This one. Yeah. So what? So, <laughs> so this is from the... So it's a charter where he grants some land to her, or she's mentioned... In it, and also there's a will from the 950s or 60s for a lady called Winfled, um, who is a major landowner in Wessex. She's got territories in Hampshire, Dorset, Somerset, and Wiltshire, Mm. and also connections to royal abbeys at Wilton and Shaftesbury. Oh, I see. So, thus, we've got a very prominent landowner called Winfled, who's a grandmother potentially of Edgar the Peaceable, Mm. and who has an association with Shaftesbury, as does.
0: The this mother, fair. yeah, this of So that's
1: why we assume that this is probably the mother. That's a safe bet, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Anyway, we don't know exactly when Elf of Shaftsbury and Edmund I get married. The first child is born in about 940, and Edmund became king in 939 at the mm. age of 18. Mm-hmm. So one assumes that if not when he became king, it must be either just before or just after. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, the land that. Either the mother or the father, depending on who had it first, would have had would have made Elfgifu quite a wealthy prospect for the young king. But it's quite a stable time when Edmund becomes king. We've had a lot of the succession crises and who's going to be king, the mothers fighting each other, and all the different. Oh yeah. But for Edmund, it's very different because he was the eldest son of Edgifu of Kent and Edward the Elder Mm. by the third marriage. But he was acknowledged as heir by his half brother Athelstan. Mm. Yes. So by the time that Athelstan dies in 939, there isn't any competition at all. Everybody for a long time has been certain that Edmund is the one that's going to rule next. Yeah, thanks. and that's all thanks to Athelstan not having kids. And, and possibly doing a deal with uh, Fu. Yeah. So uh, Edmund um, was already a very prominent figure at court. He was said to have fought heroically at the Battle of Brunanburh. Oh, big one! A couple of years before Athelstan dies, as you said, completely unchallenged as king. When he became king, his early reign was dominated by those pesky Vikings. Oh, they're still around, are they? They are, because Athelstan had managed to effectively create pretty much the borders of England as we know them today. Mm. But unfortunately, pretty quickly into Edmund's reign, in all that uncertainty, when one king dies and new youngsters mm. to establish himself, Olaf Guthrason, uh, sort of a Irish Viking. Norse Viking. Oh, in York. Yeah. He yeah. retakes Northumbria, yeah. retakes York, retakes the five boroughs. So all that hard work's got to be done again.
0: That's a Beastie Boys album.
1: All that hard work's got to be done again. Oh, five boroughs. <laughs> five boroughs. I think it is. Write in if you know. I mean, mm-hmm. don't write, but, you know. Uh, but Edmund is up to the challenge because by 944, he's won all of it back again. Boom. Northumbria, five boroughs, it's all back. Brilliant. Now, in terms of what Elfgafu of Shaftesbury is is getting up to in this time, unfortunately, we don't really know.
0: Well, this is a big whack of her life here, isn't it?
1: Well, yeah, so she seems to have been completely overshadowed by her mother-in-law, Elfgafu of Kent. Oh, yes. We said last time when we did Elfgafu that she actually goes through quite a few periods, and it almost Mm. seems to be that there's only room for one powerful woman in the royal family at a time. But she did an awful lot. Ed does an awful lot. Mm. She is witnessing charters, appearing high up the list, which indicates that she's one of the key advisors at court for mm. Edmund. Uh, in contrast, Elf only witnesses one charter, mm. and she's 12th on the list. Mm, that's not so hot. And it's still the case in Wessex, in England now, as it is, that they are not crowning their consorts as queens. So she is described on the charter as concubine regis. A royal concubine. Concubine of the king. Wow. But if we recall when we did Elfled and we talked about Anglo-Saxon marriage practice, Mm -hmm. concubine doesn't necessarily mean what we would think of it as today as just being, you know, a a bit of fancy thing on the side for the king, but rather it reflects that the marriages were perhaps not completely canon in the eyes of the church. So they could uh, be a bit more, take a wife, not tick all the boxes, not do it in church. yeah, Almost common law marriage. And then get rid of them when they like. But then you could drop them when you like. So perhaps that's what Edmund's done. He maybe hasn't gone through all of the rigmarole, mm. signed all of the boxes, mm. but she is still his wife and consort.
0: Okay. And the fact that she's signing... Uh, documents means that she's certainly no concubine as we know it today. Exactly.
1: So she's not completely mm. insignificant, powerless. And also, you know, early in the reign, they're both quite young, she's going to be producing children at mm. this point, so you know, perhaps over time would be an opportunity for then her influence to have increased. Yeah. Once that was done. Unfortunately, though, she doesn't have a very long time. Because in nine four four Elf Gufu of Shaftesbury dies.
0: Hang on, so all we know is that she has a mother and she signed one
1: thing. And she has some children.
0: Oh uh, yeah, true, that's important.
1: William of Malmesbury uh, wrote that for some years she suffered from illness and gave to God a soul that it had purged and purified. What? She died and was nice. <laughs> right, <laughs> okay. Good. So she's buried at Shaftesbury, Mm. which is this nunnery with which she is uh, strongly associated. Mm. And quite quickly after that, a cult develops around her. Why? Miracles are reported at her tomb. Oh, yeah. And she is venerated as a saint. So she is, in actual fact, Saint Elfgifu of Shaftesbury. Is she still a Catholic saint, then? How Um, does that work? I don't quite know how it works with this, because a lot of the English Saxon saints... Don't necessarily appear. I don't know if they're almost. Like sub saints, or something. Sub saints, or a different branch. But nevertheless, not much to go on in terms of life, but in death. Go on. She's achieved a very high status. Has she? Well, she's a saint. Oh, she's a saint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, that's not an awful lot of information, obviously. No. But we're going to try (laughs) and uh, pick that apart and review it. (laughs) (laughs) Batterliness! So, uh, I'll be honest, I haven't really found anything at all to go on here. Well,
0: it sounds like you didn't try very hard, Graham. You had a lot of info
1: there you need to pick apart. There's no real evidence of independent action or her doing really anything outside of the obvious. Yeah. I fear there's got to be a zero for battliness.
0: Mm. I think maybe... (laughs) (laughs) Scandal.
1: I mean, she becomes a saint, so... Uh, oh, yeah. Unfortunately. It's like minus minor scandal score. I don't really have anything to mm. ding that bell that we finally got out again.
0: Finally found it, but it is going cold. It's going very
1: cold. I fear it's another zero for scandal. Mm.
0: Subjectivity. Mm. Well, here we
1: do have some stuff to it's talk about. It's favourite one, this it one. It is your favourite one, and I know that battliness and scandal, you know, it's nice to have something to talk about there, mm. but thankfully, this is where the notes are. <laughs> okay. Some general goodness for Elfgifu of Shaftesbury. Right. From William of Malmesbury. She was a woman intent (laughs) on... She was a woman. (laughs) She was a woman intent on good works and gifted with such affection and kindness that she would even secretly discharge the penalties of those culprits whom the sad sentence of the judges had publicly condemned. What? what? Uh, So she's... Basically, letting uh, criminals off when they've been <laughs> charged by judges. Oh, right. Showing mercy. Or helping bad people. Whichever way you choose to look at it. <laughs> that costly clothing, which to many women is the panda of vice, was to her the means of liberality, as she would give a garment of the most beautiful workmanship to the first poor person she saw. Just throwing it out the window. Even Malice itself, as there was nothing to carp at, might praise the beauty of her person and the work of her hands. So she's pretty,
0: threw stuff out the window and helped bad people.
1: Mm. I also like the phrase, even though it's obviously spelt in a different way, but the panda of vice Mm. is an image (laughs) to play with. Now, they love her at Shaftesbury. Mm. Uh, Apparently, she patronised the community in her lifetime. May even have refounded the nunnery. Mm. So that's why she's particularly loved there. But the biggie for her, really, is that she is associated with miracles and sanctity. Oh. Florence of Worcester claimed that when she was pregnant with uh, Edgar the Peaceable in 943... Uh, somebody heard voices on high praising the child that was to be born. Right. Didn't happen. Next. Well, you say that, but it was a reliable witness because that person was Dunstan. Oh, I knew it.
0: I knew he had to poke his little hairy head up with something. That, and even that annoyed me before I knew it was him. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh. Goodness gracious. The near-contemporary chronicler, um, Ethel Weard, said that at her tomb, with the help of God, down to the present day, very many miracles take place in the monastery known by the common people as Shaftesbury.
0: What does everyone else call it?
1: Shaftesbury. <laughs> Lantford of Winchester in the 970s claimed that a young man from Collingbourne kept vigil at her tomb in hope of being cured of blindness. hmm It doesn't actually confirm whether or not that's <laughs> successful, but... The intention was there Yeah He didn't know where he was Poor bloke (laughs) (laughs) And William of Malmesbury again When she died God brought luster To her blessed remains Could have done that About half an hour earlier (laughs) And made her not dead (laughs) In his clemency With countless miracles If a blind man Or a deaf man Worship at her tomb They are restored to health And prove the saints merits he who went there lame comes home firm of step. The madman returns sane, rich in good sense.
0: So, we don't have any blindness anymore. This is good. That is really good, actually, isn't
1: it? No more blindness, no more lameness, no more madness. Oh. Deafness? No more deafness either. Huh. Uh, I've got a boiler problem
0: at the moment. Do you reckon gonna have a go on that? No, no evidence so.
1: for that one. Okay. Now, a particularly interesting thing is that, also, she seems to have the gift to interpret prophecy. Right. William of Malmesbury relates a dream of Edgar the Peaceable. Strap in. Here I deem it not irrelevant to commit to writing what was supernaturally shown to the king. He had entered a wood abundant in game, and, while his associates were dispersed in the thicket for the purposes of hunting, He was left alone. Pursuing his course, he came to the outlet of the wood, and, stopping there, waited for his companions. Shortly after, seized with an irresistible desire to sleep, he alighted from his horse that the enjoyment of a short repose might assuage the fatigue of the past day. He lay down, therefore, under a wild apple tree where the clustering branches had formed a shady canopy all around. They do that, don't they, those trees? (laughs) A river flowing softly beside him, adding to his drowsiness, by its gentle murmur, soothed him to sleep. When a bitch of the hunting breed, pregnant and lying down at his feet, terrified him in his slumbers. Though the mother was silent... Yet the whelps within her womb barked in various sonorous tones, incited, as it were, by a singular delight in the place of their confinement.
0: Uh, 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 so, right,
1: carry on. Astonished at this prodigy, as he lifted up his eyes towards the summit of the tree, he saw first one apple and then another fall into the river, by the collision of which the watery bubbles being put in commotion, a voice articulately sounded, Well is thee! Soon after, driven by the rippling wave, a little pitcher appeared on the stream, and after that, a larger vessel pressed upon the lesser that it might discharge its waters into it. Yet it ever happened that the pitcher escaped, still empty, and again as in a haughty and insulting manner, attacked the larger. (laughs) Returning home, his mother addressed him, that she might cheer both his countenance and his heart, saying it should be her care to entreat God, who knew how to explain mysteries by the light of his inspiration. With this admonition, he dispelled his grief and dismissed his anxiety, conscious of his mother's sanctity, to whom God had vouchsafed, many revelations. What is going on there? Well, thankfully, Elf Gifu is able to explain everything to Edgar and to us. Right. She explained that the barking whelps, so the little unborn puppies, puppies, that implies that after his death, evil types will attack the church. Right. The apples represent his two sons that he will have. That's more straightforward. With supporters of the first... Apple clashing with those of... No, with the supporters of the second apple clashing with those of the first apple. Right. The pictures represent Viking attacks which would follow after his death. But she reassures him that our angles, when they seem to be completely subjugated, shall drive them out. Uh, Saxons. Saxons, yeah. Right.
0: I mean, I think... If I were asked to do a prophecy for him, given what's gone on in the past—Viking attacks
1: mm.
0: and not terribly secure lines of succession—it's pretty, pretty easy uh,
1: prophecy. What was the one about the dogs in the belly, though? Uh, that's the evil types will attack the church after he's dead. Right. But remember, she isn't the one that has the prophecy; she interprets the dream. Right. Which was much harder to do. Yeah. Now, some people might pour scorn upon whether this is a realistic thing to have actually happened. Not least because Edgar's probably a baby when she dies. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly it's written after the fact, but nevertheless indicates the fact that she was seen in a very holy light. Yes, that is the, the most we can get out of that. That's good. Indeed. But it's all there and it's all seeing her in a holy light because she is Saint Elf Gifu of Shaftesbury. Mm. She becomes a saint. Her fame eclipses that of the first abbess of Shaftesbury, which is um, Alfred the Great's daughter, Ethel Gifu. Oh, do we... No, so a sister of ethels Lady of the Mercians and of Edward the Elder. Right. But not one that we've ever actually spent any time with. Mm. Uh, calendars and litanies of the saints from the period e- indicate that she was uh, a popular saint in the decades that follow. Mm. So, you know, she is quite a, a revered name. Mm-hmm at the time and thereafter, William of Malmesbury probably has got all of these lovely quotes because he is drawing upon a vita, not a vita, a vita, or a love. Oh, right, yeah. A hagiography, which probably would have been written about her as a saint, but doesn't now survive. Mm. A little bit like the uh, biography that he found of Athelstan's that has since been lost to history. <laughs> <that> <laughs> well, yeah. Conveniently, he's, he's the taught, only person yeah. that ever got to read yeah. it. Um, but nevertheless, we've got these stories of miracles. She's clearly well thought of at Shaftesbury. And, you know, we, um, we don't usually, we don't say this within the episode, but we did it in the, um, the animated show that in my notes, mm-hmm. I have like the baffliness, I've got warrior and then wimp mm. for subjectivity. Oh, yeah. I've got saint and sinner. Well. She is literally a saint. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, that is ticking the box. That, yeah.
0: But then when you open the box, there's not much in there. I will give a half a point for founding charity shops. Zero
1: mm-hmm. point five from Ali. Yeah, not tempted by the uh, interpreting what apples banging into each other means.
0: No, you can do that at any fairground. You go to a bloomin', I don't know what I mean,
1: but no. <laughs> well, as has ever with. This series with the Saxons, it's tricky because one assumes that as consort to Edmund, as the mother to two kings, as um, someone that becomes a saint, she must have been pretty well thought of, Mm -hmm. which suggests that she probably was doing lots of lovely deeds, like, you know, giving away all her lovely clothes, being very Christian and pious and good. Mm. But unfortunately, it's kind of hidden between the lines in terms of what she actually did. We don't have lots of concrete examples. And although we do have quite a few examples there, they're not all necessarily the most clearly factual. That is such a lovely way of putting it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'm going to be a bit more generous because I think there's evidence to suggest that people thought she was a good egg. Mm. So I'm going to give her a three. Whoa! Okay, right. I mean, that's still, you know, three out of ten. That's quite Mm. low. But, you know, I mean, she does become a saint. She represents something significant. We're thinking of, you know, legacy and Mm. of worth to the community. Mm. They obviously valued her. Well, all right. I suppose they're uh, they're her only points so far. So that gives her a score of three and a half, which takes her total score up to three and a (laughs)
0: half. Longevity.
1: Well, she has to score here. You can't deny her that. Yeah. is consort from probably 939, we Mm -hmm. don't exactly know, to at some point in 944. Oh, dear. Again, we don't exactly know. Yeah. So we'll call that a full five years. Okay. What did she die of, by the way? We don't know. Okay. Uh, William of Malmesbury said that she'd been suffering from illness for a number of years. (laughs) But it's also possible that he might have been confusing her with Ethel Gifu, the Um. original founder, because she probably was ill. So it might be that the whole foundation... Refounding thing, he might have mixed the two. He might have even mixed up his because his is the only
0: word we've got to go on. On the
1: (laughs) oh, Uh, no, we had uh, Ethel the Arts Chronicle and the chap uh, Winchester that said that there was a blind man from Collingbourne that was Uh, not to be blind anymore. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, so she is consort from 939 to 944, that's five years. And when we put that against all the other reigns, that gives her a score of five and a half out of 20. Mm. which is 41st out of uh, 50-something. Oh, dear. Not massively high. No.
0: Dynasty! Not the program.
1: Well, she does do some stuff here. Yeah. She has two surviving children. Johnny Good. Both become kings, in fact. Edwig and Mm. Edgar the Peaceable. That's pretty good going, isn't it, to have two kings for sons? Mm, And quite a short... That she's actually there as well
0: Five years, yeah
1: And again that might be part of the reason why we don't have that much about her If she, you know, that's obviously going to keep her busy
0: Yeah, I mean that's two years rip- uh, ri- written off right there Because mm. last half of pregnancy, awful mm. uh, Next six months or whatever, just looking after baby It's mm. a long period of time yeah. out of
1: five years mm. Anyway, two children though does improve matters for her Because that gives her a score of 10 out of 20 that's surprisingly high, isn't it? That's quite high. That is the joint 26th. Mm. In fact, that is a a perfect average score. <laughs> it's very lovely and average, isn't it? So a score of 10 for Dynasty takes her total score to 19. Mm. Anyway, it's not all about the scores. The fact that that's the lowest score so far, the fact that... <laughs> There are actually quite a lot of consorts whose longevity and dynasty score is already higher than the total. (laughs) Yes. It's not all about the scores. We're looking for that certain something, that lasting legacy, that great achievement and star quality that we call Rex Factor. I'm going to surprise you here. Well, I mean, I assume that as the mother of one of your favourites, Edgar the Peaceable, and as a saint talk about legacy and yeah. veneration of star quality that that is my two favourite things yeah that's appealing to a lot of your
0: um things things uh so yeah I, I say I'm going surprise you and go with no hmm
1: I can't we can't can we no we just don't know no anything about her unfortunately no, no. I mean
0: I like that and that's one of Rex Factor's purposes is to shine a bit of a light on these lesser-known uh, consorts. In this case, but you know, I've got my torch
1: out, shining it in the room. Kaine see here. Indeed, it does. I fear have to be a no for Elfgefeuchts, but we just don't have enough information on her. Mm. She doesn't have the Rex Factor. Oh well, but I'm sure she was very nice, good consort, yeah. and a lovely person. Yeah. So we didn't have a lot to say about Elfgifu herself, uh, but the fact that she became a saint is quite an interesting thing. It's quite an interesting uh, career path for a consort. Yes. Because we've been talking about, you know, the lack of a role sometimes when the actual consort, we've seen the potential role that is offered as a queen mother, Mm. becoming a saint is an entirely different strand
0: so it's definitely worth looking at this definitely
1: then? yeah so it's not so much a look at Elfgifu, but the role of religion and what that offered to royal women in Anglo-Saxon England and again the way that perhaps Wessex had a slightly different look upon things
0: this is why you didn't tell me what we were doing for hmm. the latter half isn't <laughs> it
1: <laughs> religion Yay. the royal female
0: religious
1: it sounds like it's missing a word right? <laughs> it does sound like it's missing a word So we saw when we did Edgifu of Kent previously how royal women could find a substantial role through religion as patrons under monastic reform. Mm. Elfgefu has taken a very different career path Mm. by becoming a saint. Mm -hmm. Um, Now we'll see that the early Saxons, women and particularly royal women, played a major role in the Anglo-Saxon Christian church. So it wasn't just a tenth-century phenomenon that is started by Edgifu. There's actually a lot of precedent for Anglo-Saxon women having a strong role in religious affairs and being prominent because of that. But as with their attitudes to queens, Wessex doesn't seem to have the same tradition Mm. of strong female religious figures. Yeah. And thus that is another reason perhaps why we see this sort of lack of female standing in these consorts. So we'll look at how their attitude was slightly different but how Elfgrafu is indicative of how and why those attitudes were beginning to change. Right. First up, the Anglo-Saxon conversion to Christianity. Yeah. Um, England had been Christian previously under the Romans. Oh, yeah. But then the Romans totter off to let their empire fall apart. And then we have the influx of Angles and Saxons and Dutes, all of whom are pagans. Mm. They are not Christians. though As such, Christianity in England falls by the wayside.
0: Oh, that's absolutely true. I can't believe I never realised that, that. It's funny
1: to think that it was Christian yeah.
0: for a long time before. Because when they, uh, when like St. Sed or all, you know, the uh, early, what's the word, not founding fathers, what are they, like, early people who bring yeah. Christianity, mm. I, I completely thought this was the first time it had been on the shores and mm. they were, you know, they're
1: bringing it. For the yeah. It's just rediscovering yeah, it. Yeah, it's bringing it back.
0: Mm so, were there churches? Making England
1: Christian again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh that uh,
0: Yeah, so were there any Roman churches? Oh, they all have been dismantled
1: and used to make stuff, haven't yeah. they? Yeah. Mm. So, previously Christian, Christian no more. However, in the 6th century, that all changes. And one of the key figures is a woman, Bertha of Kent. What a name. Mm. She is the daughter of 1st uh, I. What a name. The king of Paris. And she marries King Ethelbert of Kent. Mm-hmm. But the proviso that Charibert arranged was that she should be allowed to practice her Christianity. Oh, so Paris has got it. But Bertha comes over, brings a priest sets up a little church, and she is allowed to practice as a Christian. In 597, influenced by Bertha, his wife, Ethelbert accepts a papal mission seeking to send over some missionaries and convert the Saxons back to Christianity. Right. So this is the mission of Augustine, Mm. St. Augustine, who comes over and makes the Saxons Christian again. Uh, Indeed, Ethelbert himself was baptized, most likely at Canterbury, Mm. which is why, of course, Canterbury ultimately becomes centre oh, yeah. of English Christianity, right. that's where it all begins with Augustine. Bertha allows Augustine to use her chapel to perform mass and baptisms, mm. and she is recognised as having a very important role in the future spread of Christianity. So in 602, Pope Gregory I writes to Bertha, hmm? We bless almighty God, who hath graciously vouchsafed to reserve for your reward the conversion of the people of the Angles. For, as through the memorable Helena, mother of the most pious Constantine, emperor of the Romans, the hearts of the Romans were kindled to the Christian faith. So, by the zeal of your glory, we are confident the mercy of God is operating among the people of the Angles. But that's good, you know, the Pope is writing Mm. to Bertha, saying, good job, keep it up. Yeah.
0: Why isn't she better known, then?
1: Because she's a woman. Because she's a woman. Also, you know, this, I mean... We've seen even Alfred the Great, people, beyond the fact that he burnt the cakes, people (laughs) start to remember much about it. That's true. So if even that sort of figure is being forgotten, if we go back to the 6th century. Mm -hmm. Initially, perhaps, the immediate legacy is limited. There's still a strong pagan presence in Kent, but she absolutely starts the ball rolling. Her daughter, Ethelberger, marries King uh, King Edwin of Northumbria and brings about his baptism. Mm. And... Also baptised at this time is his great niece, Hilda, who becomes the founding abbess of Whitby. Ah, oh, yes, yeah. Christian centre. So Hilda is a notable landowner, sought out by great princes in the land for her advice, so she's respected generally as well as just being a religious figure. King Oswiu of Northumbria chose Whitby as the venue for the Great Synod, Synod of Whitby, mm. which decided whether they were going to follow Roman or Celtic practices. What was the outcome? They chose Roman. Yeah, of course they did. Mm. But Hilda is there. In Whitby. In Whitby, in the synod. And it's because of Hilda that they go to Whitby. Because she's a very prominent, very highly respected uh, figure. That's good. Mm. Dracula. Yes, mm. indeed. Now, an, another figure from. Um, this is the daughter of King Anna of mm. East Anglia, St. Ethelfrith. Uh, she hoped to enter the church. Mm. But uh, on her parents' insistence She was forced to marry Tondbert Who was the prince of South mm. He dies um, a few years Into the marriage So she then mar- marries King Egfrid of Northumbria mm. But she made a vow Of perpetual chastity And was eventually allowed to stop being his consort and become a nun. And she was made... (laughs) Allowed. Yeah. (laughs) Right. All right, off with you then. Okay, okay, you're really serious about this. And she becomes an abbess in Ely. But she's a very, very pious figure, refused to wear expensive linen, refused to wash in hot water, refused to eat more than one meal a day, basically spent the entire night praying in church died at a young age from a tumour in her jaw but she believed this was okay because it was a just punishment for wearing necklaces wore necklaces as a young girl
0: yeah i know this one
1: (laughs) it's the Ely yeah so after 16 years her tomb was opened the body was preserved and miraculously the wound on her jaw had healed
0: rotted away well (laughs) indeed
1: But so we've got here various examples of very prominent and notable and celebrated women who are leading figures in the church but also clearly important figures in secular affairs. Uh, so we've got daughters, mm. wives of kings, yeah. all sorts of stuff going on and indeed in the early years of Saxon Christianity men seem to have been quite slow to embrace uh, the new faith, particularly royal or noble men. So uh, King Sigabert of East Anglia apparently had to be dragged onto the battlefield to fight against the pagans because he was struggling to reconcile being a Christian with actually fighting and killing other men. That's a good point. So he was dragged onto the battlefield and promptly slaughtered (laughs) by pagans who didn't have quite the same qualities.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh,
1: Bishop Aidan, who's another one of those uh, fascinating early figures, apparently had to bring up slaves to be trained as priests because there were so many vacancies in the 7th century. Wow. So they just didn't have people to actually become... That says a lot, doesn't it? Like, that... Presumably, and we're we're right
0: in the muddy period of history that here. This is very muddy at the moment. I mean, this is a, the thick of it. Yeah. That um, they'd rather no, I'll carry on this
1: squalid existence in a hut <laughs> rather than be a priest, which presumably <laughs> had lots of perks. Ultimately, yeah. Wow. Mm. But again, these are the early figures, the early missionaries. Mm. They're the ones that are going to have to be building the churches and mm. doing all that sort of stuff these are going to be missionaries as well because yeah. a lot of people are still pagan and i suppose when you've got pagans running around killing the christians mm. maybe it's a bit more of a commitment yeah uh, but in contrast the female religious figures in this period are far more notable and prominent abbesses tend to be royal born or well, certainly the initial abbesses of any religious house, whereas the men are often from humble origins. Like we said, we've got Aidan training up slaves. St Cuthbert's a hermit on Lindisfarne, Bede. His parents are unknown.
0: Yeah, and story. all the consorts that we've talked about, a load of them seem to disappear off to found abbeys and stuff.
1: Mm. So in, it seems that for royal women in this period... Absolutely normal career paths, go into the church, become a major figure, be highly respected mm. across the country. Men are actually not quite as keen to get into it. Mm. So as such, the women, in many ways, are the leaders um, in lots of ways. We've got double houses set up, which are joint communities of male and female religious. And right. they're usually um, under the command or the control of an abbess. Hmm. So we've got male sort of you know monks or priests or whatever... Mm. reporting to a woman. Bede mentions nine of these double houses, but there may have been as many as 50. There are all sorts of different sizes and make-up. Um, but the abbesses don't just organise prayers. It's also often these will be administrative centres for the surrounding areas, because mm. once they start to get established, communities will then develop around them. And Well,
0: they they yeah. sort of, I imagine, are the establishment at this point, are they? Mm. It's not like you'd have the county council in the in no. the uh, town. <laughs> yeah. It'd be the abbey. Hmm.
1: Other women, particularly min, uh, widows, live slightly more informally, either in small congregations or even essentially their own household. <laughs> so we've got a contrast between what is known as uh, Mincian, Mincian, apologies for pronunciation for any old English fans, which are cloistered nuns, mm. who are the ones who are sort of properly, fully religious, go into the nunnery and that's where you stay. That's staying. what I think of, yeah. But we've also got, confusingly, Nunan. What? Nunan, which are vowesses. Initially, the word nana was just generally anybody that was vaguely in a religious house of some kind. Now, vowesses have a more ephemeral arrangement. So they can take religious vows, but without being permanently alienated from their families and their land. So you could send a widow or you could send, you know, maybe a second-born daughter or something who isn't lined up for a lovely marriage, send her off to a nunnery. But if a few years down the line you think, actually, we could do with making a marriage this previous... Pull them out again. Didn't work bring them out, get them married, and it's all fine.
0: So it's like a sort of a uh,
1: holding role. Yeah. Well, that sounds all right. somewhere safe to go, but without, you know. Yeah.
0: And what do they do? Do well, they just read and... Oh, i tell you what, I could get used to that.
1: Mm. Elfled, the uh, first consort that we did about Edward the Elder, probably planned to do something like that because she went into a nunnery when Ed- Edward had done with her. Mm. But then she's got the chance to be Queen Mother when Edward mm, dies, so yeah. potentially she was expecting to be able to come out, Yeah. having gone in. Uh Bede, who's this great historian, the Anglo-Saxon period, finished his Ecclesiastical History in 731, which is talking about all of this stuff, a history of mm. religion in England and the Saxons. But it's really notable that he doesn't just focus on the men, but he records lots of women who are worthy of emulation in his Gallery of Good Examples. <laughs> And unlike the men, we had said that king who struggled with how to be a Christian but also go on the battlefield, Mm. that's in Bede's work. So he's got these examples of men who are struggling and not really getting it. All of the women seem to be very successful and very respected. We've got saints, we've got abbesses, we've got very
0: prominent Well It sort of gives them a, a role in a time when there wasn't one in society. Unlike for men, like the king, it made sense for him to be on a battlefield and then, oh, but to take this on means, can I be on a battlefield? Women, we haven't even had their date of birth recorded yeah. half the time. Mm.
1: But the interesting thing is this is in the 6th century, the 7th century, but we're reviewing oh, the yeah. consorts oh, yeah. in the 10th century.
0: Good 400 years later.
1: So exactly, we've actually, in a way, looking at this period, you're thinking, well, women have got these really prominent roles, yeah. lots of famous figures. The men think that it's worth writing about the women in yeah. the 8th century. Yeah. So what happens? That so we get to, you know, all the Wessex consorts and they don't even let them be queens yeah but it seems to go down in what's known as the second phase conversion so you've had the initial stuff in this sort of sixth century where let's get them to be christian and then the second phase is right let's get them to be control people. exactly so eighth and ninth century when this happens there seem to be a lot more hang-ups developing around gender and sexuality yeah. and as such the role and activities of women are being limited by church leaders mm. so in the seventh century a figure called aldhelm wrote that pure virginity is preserved only in the fortress of the free mind rather than being contained in the restricted confines of the flesh. What,
0: so he's saying you can be a virgin in your mind but not in body?
1: Yeah, so he's eventually saying you can be pure in spirit. doesn't really matter if you're... You well, know, that's alright, isn't it? That sort of stuff. Yeah, that's in the 7th century. Later, Boniface, Pope Boniface, the Archbishop of Canterbury... It would be well and favorable for the honor and purity of your church if your synod and your princes would forbid matrons and veiled women to make these frequent journeys back and forth to Rome. A great part of them perish, and few keep their virtue. There are very few towns in Lombardy or Frankland or Gaul in which there is not a courtesan or a harlot of English stock. It is a scandal and disgrace to your whole church.
0: I don't like the cut of this man's jib.
1: Now, we also see this uh, in other areas, that generally the church is increasingly uncomfortable with basically women's bodies. Mm. So Gregory the Great told Augustine, so this is going back to the original conversion in the 6th century, that it's a matter of choice whether or not women could take communion um, when they're menstruating. (laughs) What's that? Right, yeah, sorry. So he's saying, yeah, probably it's all right, you know. Yeah,
0: but with the fact that it's even a question... I mean, I'm going, looking at this from but 2000 this is, years
1: ago. This, this is the, the um, liberal attitude in the 6th century. Right. When we get to the 8th century, mm-hmm. women shall not, in the time of impurity, enter a church or communicate, neither nuns nor laywomen. So, crackerjack. So bodily functions are distasteful. Women must be actual virgins now, often figures uh, represented uh, in histories who are persecuted or pursued. So there's almost a rewriting of that early history. They're no longer the leading figures. They have to be in some ways victims or indeed Mm. uh, harlots of some kind. So the Normans would write out stories of men and women working together. So St. Ethelfrith, the Ely one, Uh, She was now, rather than saying to the king, I'm taking a vow of chastity and I'm going to become a nun, Mm. instead she's having to flee from evil pursuers who are trying to take her modesty and her Ah,
0: And she stands on a rock for three days and
1: three nights or something. Mm. I remember that from school, Mm. sure. So they're changing the narrative.
0: And that sort of fits with the idea of um, the mythology of the time with... uh, the damsels in distress and the mm. knights being uh, rescuers and everything. <laughs> you can't actually have a powerful woman in her own right. Yeah.
1: Now, as we discussed when we did Edgafu last time, the 10th century monastic reform movement demanded more strict and austere observance of religion. Mm. So they looked to get rid of the sort of slightly looser, more secular approach um, to one that's a bit more centralised and distinct mm. in the secular world. Emphasis on sexual purity mm. and also landholding. Uh, So women now represent everything that monks are meant to reject. So you don't want them to be together and working together in the same place. You want them completely separate. Mm. So what about Wessex? Mm. What does Wessex think about women and religion and being powerful figures? good. Exactly. As they are contrary with the queens, so they are with prominent uh, female religious figures. Um, It's notable when Mercia conquered Kent... Um they then put lots of royal Mercian women in charge of the Kent ministers as a means of you know, extending their control. When Egbert of Wessex conquers Kent, he does not follow suit. Mm. He doesn't want really these powerful women, they don't have the same sort of thing going on.
0: Because Kent you were saying last time was sort of a little power base on its own. Originally kingdom. its
1: own kingdom, conquered by Mercia, then mm. conquered by Wessex. Mm. Um other kingdoms have lots of saints. Wessex apparently only had two initially. And I think this is male or female So perhaps there's a broader issue with the West Saxons Not really using religion quite as effectively As a sort of tool of the state As perhaps the other Mm, kingdoms are doing But things do start to change They've got connections with the Carolingian court The Ottonian court and of course Mercia Where we've got a strong tradition Both of strong female leaders But also of royal nunneries And this sees a change in the attitudes Alfred's daughter was made an abbess And his consort, admittedly after he died, Elswith, founds a nunnery. Mm. So this starts to herald a stronger connection between church, state, and indeed women Mm. in Wessex. So Ethel fled Lady of the Mercians, Alfred's eldest daughter. Um, She's the first Wessex person really to use the cult of saints for political purposes. So she transferred relics as saints to Gloucester and Chester. She did so as a Mercian, Mm. of course, but she's a major influence on Athelstan. Mm-hmm. that she brings up. So the first ever portrait of a Saxon king, is a contemporary portrait, is Athelstan presenting a book to St Cuthbert. So even though she did it in Mercia, it's the spreading. legacy yeah. comes to Wessex. Um, and from the 9th century, we see a big increase in female religious houses in Wessex and a prominent religious role for royal women. So Alfred's daughter, Ethel Giffu, was made da- uh, abbess of Shaftesbury. And this becomes a big religious house for lots of royals. Ed Giffu might have gone there. Elf Giffu, of course, mm-hmm. goes there. The biggie, and not a woman, but Edward the Martyr, is yeah. buried at Shaftesbury. Is he really? It is. Uh, Elswith is said founded Nunnerminster, St Mary's Abbey in Winchester. A uh, daughter of Edward the Elder and Edgifu, um, Edbur went into Nunnerminster uh, as a nun, or a vowess, perhaps. But there are still some limitations. It's notable that very few Wessex royal women who enter nunneries end up becoming abbesses. Right. Now this might be a bit of bad luck because they die young. Mm. Or indeed, the reason they went in in the first place might have been that they were ill and so wouldn't be able to marry and thus they're not going to have a long life and become abbesses. But we also see consorts being retired to nunneries. Mm. So Elfled, the first consort of Edward the Elder, gets sent off to a nunnery. Later on, we'll see Edward the Confessor tries to do this to his consort, Edith, when he's at odds with her family, the Godwins.
0: Mm, Just a way of getting rid of people.
1: Yeah, so perhaps as the Queen's role becomes more... Powerful is not such an incentive to abandon the possibility of land and influence by becoming mm. an abbess. Mm. You don't want to be cut off from everybody else.
0: Yeah, because there's an opportunity there. Mm. Mm.
1: Now, there's a clear motivation for nunneries to develop cults around figures from the royal house, whether they be male and female, because um, they will then receive more patronage, they'll be more likely to survive as a royal house. Mm. But it can't just come from the nunnery, it's got to come from the people. And indeed, for it to really catch on, it's got to be promoted by powerful people at court.
0: Yeah, what's the motivation then?
1: Well, it seems like there is a growing awareness in Wessex, partly perhaps originally inspired by the fact that Ethel said and Athelstan say, hey, you know what, it's really good having saints, that everyone can kind of get around and think that this adds luster. But perhaps they then start to realise that queens and mothers could be used to enhance the royal house by becoming saints. There's a dynastic element to it. Because, obviously, early saints, like um, St. Ethelfrith that we mentioned, and figures like Bertha, these are uh, daughters of kings. So they are very prominent and notable women by birth. But the consorts are marrying into the royal family, so they're not bringing this luster. They can... In afterlife. They can after their life if they become saints. So if they're not around like Edgar Fu to become a prominent Queen Mother, you can retrospectively make them prominent by them becoming a saint. And Mm -hmm. thus, her cult is widely promoted during the reign of her younger son, Edgar the Peaceable. Because if his mother is a saint... What does that make him? Exactly. Hence his dream, which she interprets for him.
0: Oh, that's good, isn't it?
1: Even though it never actually happened, of course, but the story needs to be there to demonstrate her saintliness and thus his Yeah. Great. Yeah.
0: And, like, being the... It's a bit of a um, Christ complex, isn't it? If you're the sort of... You're the son
1: of a saint. So all of this is good in terms of seeing, again, that role in maternity to the consorts, that the sons are starting to see the way that their mothers can be useful if they mm. are more powerful and more celebrated that enhances their own status mm. so that's a positive for the consorts in that we've got kings thinking about how women who are or have been consorts does put them down a specific route though doesn't <laughs> it but puts them down a specific route and also it means again that we sort of lose an aspect of who they actually are mm. so with elf it's that ha- hagiographical trope thing We're filling in a template of this is what a good woman does to be seen Mm. as a saint. Mm. We're celebrating not for who she was and what she achieved, but because she is the mother of the king.
0: And it's a group of blokes after her life saying what they wanted her to be Mm. or what was useful to them. Yeah, it's
1: a way to venerate the dynasty rather than Mm, specifically the the woman. Mm, mm. So it's interesting actually going down the line, Edgar the Peaceable's son, Ethelred the Unready, when he marries Emma of Normandy, mm. she has to change her name to a Saxon one, mm. and it is to Elfgifu, hmm. obviously in honour of yeah Ethelred's grandmother. Aethelred's oh, right, that Elfgifu. makes sense. So they've set her up now as this sort of saintly mother of the dynasty. Yeah.
0: Right, so she is... Oh, it's tricky then. I'm, I'm glad I didn't know that before reviewing her, because we reviewed her more honestly,
1: but... She has great importance to this dynasty then. Retrospectively, it's given great significance Mm. because it suits the dynasty. It's the way of using the women. Mm. So it's positive for the consorts in that the kings are now seeing the potential for Mm. women being celebrated. But it still wasn't enough for her to actually achieve prominence in her lifetime. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: So yeah, it's very useful after the fact because everyone's
0: dead. Yeah. So you just, just make me, anything yeah. up.
1: Yeah. But it does at least show that they're getting a little bit more back to where we were <laughs> 300 years earlier. Weird. When the women really were very prominent. Wessex, but, once again, very slowly coming around to the idea that powerful women could be a useful thing, mm. given the right circumstances.
0: But still now this power that they do have is tempered and controlled by men
1: now. yes, Men still oh. writing the narrative, but... They have at least now found a space in the narrative for women.
0: And uh, yeah, whilst forgetting the fact that it was women that started this whole process. Exactly.
1: Correspondence Corner. Please do get in touch and let us know what you think. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactorPod. Like the RexFactor Podcast Facebook page and join in the discussions there. Email RexFactorPodcast at hotmail.com. Go to RexFactor.wordpress.com to read the blogs and complete the polls. And please remember to send in your hashtag consort card for Elfgafoo of Shaftesbury. Yes, please. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you use. And if you'd like to support us financially, then you can donate on a monthly basis and join the Privy Council. You get bonus content, such as the Privy Chamber podcast, which we record after each of our normal episodes. Depending on the level you donate at, you could also get special episode access, mugs, t-shirts, all sorts of What way. was that
0: last Privy Chamber we did? I really enjoyed that one. Was that the one where we
1: talked about Notre Dame? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that was good. And we've got some new privy councilors to welcome. Oh, legends. Stephen Atkins. Hello, Cressida Power. Oh, hello Cressida. Hamish Goodwin. Good name. Kendra Court. Oh. Matt Meehan. Megan Chaplin. JC Marsal. Ellen Streitlean. Robin Buchanan. Miles kerr Peterson. Oh, he's the one that got us #rememberith right, into uh, a yeah. actual book. Yeah. Yeah, legend. Glasgow. Louise Bushnell, Thab Deco, Helen Howard, Liz Woods, Johnny Buckley, and Teresa Schollbaum.
0: Arise, one and all, you absolute stars. It seems like, thanks to you guys,
1: we'll be coming back next week to do another (laughs) one. (laughs) I've got some messages from some of our previously new Privy Councillors. (laughs) Uh, Joanne Foreman said, I'd been thinking about becoming a a member of the Privy Council for a while now, and after being lucky enough to see your live show in Glasgow, I was spurred into action. Hey. Looking forward to Series 3. Thank you. Will Tiernan. Oh, yeah. Thanks for all the educational and entertaining podcasts you provided. Keep up the good work when you guys get the chance given the business and busyness of real life. Signed, Will. I won't mention eating socks again after this. Tiernan. Socks?
0: Yes. Socks? Oh hang on, yes, no, I think he's right. I mean he is right, isn't he? <laughs> I'm sure, sure. Um.
1: Now unfortunately, uh some of the comments I think Podbean generates usernames, so if you haven't put in your name or if you don't leave it in the message, then I sometimes end up with things like LXK nine eight seven. Well, if you recognise this, it's you. Thanks for making my walk to work so enjoyable. Particularly thanks to Ali for the huge comedy in never remembering who was a Malcolm or a James and which Malcolm or James they were in the Scottish series. I mean I don't think anyone truly knows. <laughs>
0: Genuinely, I don't think anyone has any idea. And you, I reckon each time you say, oh no, that was
1: James the um, what oh, haven't I said yet? Second. <laughs> go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no one knows. And Kath PK says... Money! Quite right, as we all should every night. <laughs> uh, some other messages from our loyal listeners. Mm. Lily Mayer uh, messaged in about, you remember in the first episode of this series when we talked about that bizarre quote from um, Winnie the Pooh, where Christopher Robin yeah. tells Winnie the Pooh, well, she's got in to tell us the meaning of oh, the factors. Brilliant. I wanted to pop in with a quick etymology. A factor mm. is an obsolete word for a kind of chief of staff. It comes from the Latin facere, meaning to do or to make, and so that's a person employed to make things happen, a doer, if you will. Mm. A related word is factotum, though a factor mm. would be a higher-ranking member of a royal retinue than a factotum, operating on behalf of the king. Like a butler and a secretary sandwich, rolled in some chivalric stuff, then dipped in sealing wax. (laughs) So Christopher Robin is saying that he's knighting Pooh and making him his right-hand bear, so you're still the inventors of the Rex Factor.
0: Oh, that's good. That's that's really the knowledge of our Rex
1: fans. (laughs) Amazing. Tony Cook says, hi guys. Hello. I've just started listening to your podcast following a recommendation from one of your avid listeners, Katie Mickleswaite. Ah, good old Katie. And wanted to let you know how brilliant I'm finding them. I've only got as far as Edward the Martyr so far, and I'm especially loving Ali's hatred of Dunstan.
0: That's got to be four times he's come up today.
1: Personally, I'm convinced Dunstan was, or is, some kind of immortal being. Admittedly, I haven't checked the dates, but it seems like he's already been around for 200 years, and I assume he's going to be advising Ethelred too. I bet he's still around now.
0: Yeah, exactly my thoughts as well. I like this this man.
1: Chad Burns. Hey, Chaddy Chaddy. I was wondering that none of the other kingdoms that had, quote, more respect for women were Saxon kingdoms. Mercia and Northumbria were Angles and Kent was Jute. So this is the original Mm. sort of Germanic origins of all Mm. the Anglo-Saxons as they become, that become the English. Could the chauvinism be a Saxon and not just a Wessex Alfred thing?
0: God, that's interesting, isn't it?
1: It's an interesting theory. One should look into.
0: Yeah. If anyone out there is doing some research into Anglo Saxon misogyny <laughs> <laughs> or just uh, ancient British history, that would be an interesting angle to explore, wouldn't it?
1: Hmm. Now, finally, I'm sure many of you will remember last year that we had Rex Factor the animated show. It certainly did, yeah. Uh, where Tin Mouse Animation animated us. Reviewing King Richard III mm. And it was absolutely brilliant We were really, really pleased with it Got to do the premiere at the Richard III Museum in Leicester Yes Had Tom and Mike on the podcast for one episode oh Yeah, of course, yeah And we're happy to report, a little shout out That Tom and his wife Hannah have had a baby girl Yes, they have Tom's uh, on the dynasty charts Yeah, yeah, he's out there With one or all. With one indeed. So hello to Baby Isla, presumably our newest and youngest listener. (laughs) It's meant to be very good for sleep. Yeah.
0: It's it's
1: like, play them Beethoven and Rex Factor and, you know, you get a genius. So those are all our messages. Please do keep them coming in. We always love to have them. Next time we will be doing the second of Edmund the First's wives. Ethel fled. What? Of Damarum. Isn't this one called that? No, this one was Elfgifu of Shaftesbury. Next one is Ethelfed of Damarum or Damaham. Durham? No. Right. See you next time. Cheerio. (laughs)